It's the song of the redeemed Rising from the African plain It's the song of the forgiven Drowning out the Amazon rain The song of Asian believers Filled with God's holy fire Every tribe, every tongue, every nation love song born of a grateful choir it's all god's children singing glory glory hallelujah he reigns he reigns it's all god's children singing glory glory hallelujah he reigns let it rise above the four winds caught up in the heavenly sound let praises echo from the towers of cathedrals To the faithful gathered underground Of all the songs sung from the dawn of creation Some more meant to persist Of all the bells rung from a thousand steeples None rings truer than this It's all God's children singing glory, glory series on the Sermon on the Mount. We are in Matthew chapter 5, <clears throat> verse 17 through, well, a lot more than through 20. It's going to be through 30. And so let's read and then we'll pray. Beginning of verse 17, this is a word of the Lord. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. 
I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's take a moment and let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for technology that still enables us to, even at a distance, as much as we just, in this difficult season that we're all in, we long to be together more, um, but we are thankful that we can at least join virtually. But Lord, your word is powerful and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. And Lord, we submit beneath your scriptures, Lord, as your scriptures were written by you, they were inspired by you. And so, Lord, this morning as we um, open them up, we pray that your spirit would speak to us deeply, Lord, that even those who are watching online, if we can take advantage of the comment stream, and if you have a word that, that you speak to anybody, that they could just share it with the rest who are watching online even now. Lord, we pray for any who are, who are sick, Lord, who are hurting this week. Lord, for the family of Herman Sadler, who's a longtime member here, who passed away this week. Lord, the, it's just a hard season, Lord, for so many. For those who are just feeling the four walls of their home just enclose around them with the cold and with just the, the struggles of seasonal depression that comes that are probably just even more amplified this year. Lord, we just pray for your healing presence in their lives, for your peace in their lives, Lord, for just a continual creativity to stay uh, in community and, and engage in one another, Lord. Keep us from isolation in this period, even intentional or accidental isolation. And Lord, I pray that even against all the odds that we could flourish in this time by the help of your Spirit, that you could even flourish as a church by your help of the Spirit. So Lord, in the oncoming months as we just get ready for warmer weather and a lot of behind the scenes just kind of thinking and planning of ministry is taking place, would you please guide us? And uh, this morning, speak to us, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. So this sermon is entitled, Jesus in Human Flourishing. And I can say that right now, more than ever, our nation needs flourishing Christians, Christians who are, who are laser-focused on Jesus, Christians who are laser-focused on what it means to flourish in Him. And these verses before us today are some of the most important verses in the entire Bible, if we want to ask that really simple yet ancient and basic question, who is Jesus and what did He say about Himself? Who did He claim to be? And so this passage, if we, when we dig into it, as you'll see, it really uh, answers or tries to bring some kind of at least conversation to some of life's biggest questions. If Jesus really is who he says he is, what does that mean about you, about your life? 
about what, uh, how do we understand the Bible or the law, the Old Testament. Um, oh, I just skipped a page about to say that question comes in a little further on here. Two seconds as I get more organized. Aha, there we go. Okay, what does that mean about you or your life or who you are and how does that change who you are, your actions, your perhaps motivations behind your actions? It is these kind of big questions that arise out of this passage. Each of the ones that I think humanity is, we're always in some kind of desperation um, uh, of, of hearing and answering or trying to answer. And I hope that this morning we can at least, you know, the conclusions are big and broad, but we can at least tackle some of those through this passage this morning. So beginning of verse 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And so right off the bat, due to the boldness of his teachings, Jesus starts off this section by answering a question that we can kind of, you know, it's implied that people were asking him. Something along the lines of this question. So Jesus, the way you're talking and preaching about yourself and the message that you're preaching here, it kind of makes it sound like, uh, you know, the, the Bible in those days would have been essentially all just the Old Testament. The law and the prophets is a phrase that means the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament today, which they had. They're saying, Jesus, the way you're talking makes it sound like that maybe, you know, the law and the prophets, our Old Testament doesn't even matter anymore. Are you actually claiming that we can just kind of put that aside and just listen to you? And he says, No. No, 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 no. I, I, that's not what I'm, I'm not coming to abolish those things, what the prophet said or what Moses said in the law. I'm not coming to get rid of that. I'm coming here to fulfill them. And that begs the question, what does that mean, Jesus? What does it mean to fulfill the law and the prophets? I mean, I mean endless amounts of ink has been spilt over answering that question. What did he mean, right? And I won't get lost on a tangent here, but it seems that we can sum it up in a, in a couple of ways because it's a big, it's a complex answer. But what Jesus is saying, and I want you again we're, we're, to picture yourself. When you read these stories, imagine you're the one for the first time, I don't care how many times you've read this, you're the one standing in that ragtag crowd of people who were just healed. You remember the whole, you know, illustration of, it's like the hospital got dumped out and Jesus healed everybody in the hospital and brought them in as his new followers and is explaining to them this new way of life, of being his followers. Imagine you're in that crowd right there and you're hearing this for the first time, right? This is what Jesus is saying in this passage. He's saying the law and the prophets, the Bible essentially, is about him. If you want to understand what they mean, you start with Jesus. And we can say this also in a different way. At the very beginning of our Bibles, Moses received laws from God. You can read that story in Exodus. And, uh, and these laws were given to his redeemed people whom he rescued out of Egypt. 613 laws, the poor soul who counted them. We all trust his word because we don't want to go and double check his work. But supposedly, there's 613 laws in the Old Testament, in the first five books of our Bible. 
Now imagine that all of these laws, all of their stipulations, all the things that they, that they called for, imagine that they took on flesh and became a person. That's Jesus. But the idea of Jesus fulfilling the law and the prophets can be defined in also another way. Jesus, and this is the radical stuff we're looking at here, Jesus is placing himself in a position that it could be said to properly understand everything of what the Old Testament says. you got to look at me. You cannot understand your Bible without understanding Jesus. You cannot understand Christianity without understanding Jesus. This is basically what it means that it says Jesus fulfilled the law. There's more that could be said. But he anticipates another question after this, right? As he says, yes, I fulfilled it. All the prophecy and all the stipulations, not only am I doing what the law called, I am fulfilling the prophecy of all the law. Yes, it's pointing to me. And the next question that is kind of begged as he worked through this passage is, well, Jesus, if you fulfill it, does that mean that the law of Moses was good up until you, and now it's like it's done, so we can just, again, set that aside and we can move on? And he says, no, 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 no. Truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot. Those are some of the Hebrew subscripts there. Not the tiniest little mark in the Hebrew that the Bible was originally in the Old Testament was written. And not the tiniest little mark will pass away until all is accomplished. Until heaven and earth pass away is really a reference to the end of days, the, you know, the apocalypse, his return when all things are made new. The moment when God returns to this earth to renew all things, to bring heaven and join it to earth, this will stand even until that day. Now, I want to talk about the idea of, of law here, okay, and get kind of zoom out a little bit here, not just, you know, the, the fact that God gave us the law has a lot of kind of implications if you want to talk about who we are as people, right, um, we need laws, right? God knew this. In our fallen state, he knew that in order to reveal himself to us, he had to reveal through the law essentially the, the way we are to live as his people because there is sin inside of us. There is a fallen nature inside of us that he has to essentially say, now you're living in this complicated fallen world. Here is how you are to live. And in doing so, you're going to carry out my work of redemption throughout this world as he is in the business of reconciling all things back to himself. We need laws as humans. Now imagine this scenario for me, okay? Imagine that all of our roads just had no laws, no stop signs, no speed limits, no traffic lights, just nothing, just blank empty, no lines, just, just blank empty roads. And imagine the chaos that would happen, right? Um, and usually, you know, uh, it, we would probably figure it out because we would realize we need some kind of order to make this work, right? We need to kind of figure this whole driving thing out. If there's no rules here, well, we got to kind of create them to give us order of how to get down this road to avoid driving head-on into one another, right? Maybe one line of cars should go this way, one line of cars should go that way, and, and vice versa. And, you know, over time, 
laws would be built and order would be brought. And I think it's just a very basic way that we can look at almost all of our lives and say, God, since the very beginning, he created us beneath him in an orderly world that says, you need me. And you need the order that I have designed into this world. And just for a moment, if you, thought, if you think that you can branch off of the order of my, of, of my design and my intentions for humanity, you will just find death because you will be playing God. And that was what Adam and Eve screwed up at the very beginning. Now, law is a very natural result of humanity's need for order because we need restraint. We can't truly be free. I want you to, to bear with me as you walk through Jesus talking about him fulfilling the law and implications for us. We can't actually truly be free. If we were truly free and lived truly free lives, we would destroy ourselves. But our culture, it's, 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 it's amazing to see every culture uh, eventually almost commits its own, you know, its own suicide, right? It ends up destroying itself because we have this longing inside of us to be free, essentially to do as we please, to call the shots in our life and to make our own laws, which usually in our day is according to our own happiness, right? Whatever makes you happy is you have permission to do. And if I tell you you can't do that, even though it makes you happy, our society today says, well, who are you to tell me what to do? You ever been told that one before, right? There's, there's a song some years ago that now will be stuck in your head for the rest of the day by Pharrell Williams, if you remember it, called Happy. And if you know the song, it's already stuck in your head now because it's very catchy. But there's a line in that song that really sums up this mode of thinking. He says this, Clap along in the chorus, you know, they're all clapping and dancing, and I'm not going to clap and dance for you. But it says, clap along if you feel that happiness is the truth. Maybe you just heard that song many times and you didn't pay attention, but happiness is the truth? Is that trying to say that and happiness is found all meaning? And that we thus need to pursue happiness at all costs? That because you are not happy, it gives you permission to break promises and covenants and betray friendships and even try to push off the boundaries of everything from sexuality and our gender and our nature, some of the most basic institutions of order in our human existence because of how you feel? What I'm trying to pinpoint here really is a question of authority. Do you have authority over your life or do you not? Do you, can you really do as you please? Are you free to break those institutions of order if you feel like it as long as it makes you happy? Our current society imagines all over again that we are all, almost our own gods over our own existence. Jesus' words here, they go deep. He's really prying into our human nature here. And he is placing himself as the answer. Yes, God gave these laws in the Old Testament, but they were pointing towards me. I'm actually living this out. And I am the essentially the true human being, the one that is truly in God's image. And if you were to find flourishing and life beneath God, the life of redemption and salvation and flourishing, you follow me is now I explain to you what this law is really about. He is the answer to humanity's weaknesses. 
He continues on. He says, therefore, whoever relaxes even the the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, you will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, Jesus gets into some really interesting territory here. He says, don't lack anything that you find in the Bible. That's what the least in my kingdom do. Rather, do them. Teach them. And that's where true greatness in his kingdom lies. And we'll define this further. In fact, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the best and most famous Bible teachers in his land, you will never enter my kingdom. Now, I want to try to put that in modern-day terms, and I try to find the most well-known, you know, teacher I could, Billy Graham. I think we've all heard of Billy Graham. He's a little famous, just a little bit, right? Well, the scribes and the Pharisees were kind of like the Billy Grahams, in a way, I guess you could say, of Jesus' day. They were the most famous Bible teachers. They were the authority. If you wanted to know what the Bible said, you went to the scribes and the Pharisees. And Jesus says, if we put that in modern day terms, unless your righteousness exceeds Billy Graham or the best you know, Bible teachers in the land, you can never enter or be a part of Jesus's kingdom. And you say, well, this is a little interesting. Jesus, are you saying I must like outperform them or something? Be more righteous than them? Well, how do I know just how righteous he was? Is this like a new standard? Like I'm, it's, it's, it's a little confusing in a first read. But if you really look into it, most Bible commentators agree that if we look at the context of what Jesus is saying, this is essentially, once again, pointing people towards himself. He's saying, look, you need to ensure that you're following the right people. You need to be sure you're listening to the right teachers, right? Because their righteousness can't save you. Those teachers and what they teach can't save you unless you exceed them. And by implication, again, as throughout the rest of the sermon, he continually points toward himself. You see, the Bible's not about Rick Warren, who wrote The Purpose Driven Life. Even though he teaches the Bible and he spent decades of his life teaching it, it has probably ministered to most of us in this room. If I aim to live out my Christian faith in the likeness of Rick Warren, the question would be, well, is the Bible about Rick Warren? Did Billy Graham come to fulfill the law and the prophets. You understand kind of what Jesus is doing here? You have to go past, you have to look much past them and say that, that they're, we're thankful for them, right? But who is this really about, after all? Who is the law and, and the prophets in our lives and the Bible? Who is this really about? It is Jesus himself. Now, again, if you're listening to this in your original audience, and you're hearing this, your head's probably spinning, right? You're thinking like, this guy's either a nut job and I should get out of here, Right? Or, I mean, if he's a real deal, if this is really who he says he is, then everything changes, right? Everything changes. You need to make sure that you are ultimately following Jesus, that you're reading your Bible according to Jesus' teaching, ensuring that the Bible teachers you listen to are doing just that with their own teaching. A little side note here. Be weary of pastors and Bible teachers who write the long, lengthy books and preach long, lengthy sermons about all kinds of interesting stuff, about 
about, you know, nations and political leaders and patterns and numerology and symbols and all this allegory and so forth. And they've always been in church history, but so many times if you squint and look hard into the works of these individuals and look for where is Jesus, where is Jesus, where is Jesus. And maybe you see a little mention here, a little mention there, but it's about all kinds of stuff. But Jesus is really hard to find. I'm going to tell you, you need to think about moving on from those teachers because Jesus has told us who the Bible is really about, and it's him. So let's move on. A little recap. We've established the Bible is about him. And we're applying that our lives are to be about him also. We've established the illusion of modern society that says you and I are little gods over our lives, that we are free to do as we please as long as we are happy, cast off all restraint as we attempt to make life about us. That's an illusion. We've established that. And Jesus is saying, look, it's about me. And if, if, if you are to learn more about this, make sure that your leaders are pointing you towards me. Otherwise, you are being deceived. And this is a great authority he is speaking with. I mean, tremendous authority. I really want you to just, just hear what he's saying. I mean, if, if somebody today was talking this way, some teacher that was alive today that spoke this way, I would say, get out of there, run away. This guy's a fraud because this is insane speaking. But we know, with the beauty of hindsight, Jesus was God in the flesh, right? And I want you to, to feel his authority. He's, he's, these words should be confronting us in this passage, confronting how we approach God, confronting how we approach his Bible, and how we approach his word, and really how we even think about ourselves and our existence. You cannot understand who you are apart from Jesus. Your life will always struggle to find fulfillment and to find meaning apart from Jesus. You are not your own person. You do not have authority over yourself. And we have to continually teach this over and over again. You do not have authority over yourself. And so many of you are at home right now because of our icy parking lot. And here we are. You do not have authority over yourself, Emmanuel Church, you are worshiping from your living rooms. We have to repeat this over and over today. This is the uphill battle of our culture. To accept the kind of authority Jesus is teaching here is to begin relinquishing all of your life to him. Every thought, every emotion, every feeling, every motivation, everything for every hour, every minute, every day, you lose the privileges over your own life. And every time you pick up this Bible, we can ask Jesus, how can you show me more of yourself rather than Jesus how can you show me more of myself? I want to get practical as I could keep going there, but we have a lot more ground to cover. Jesus does shift to the practicality of this, as most of this has been theoretical so far. How then are we to live? Maybe you're thinking, geez, right now I kind of feel like I need a new version of me. <laughs> I feel like I've been, my heart, if I'm honest, it's about myself quite often. I really do get lost in that whole happiness is the goal, right? And sometimes I feel like my own happiness is more important than even Jesus. Oftentimes I even try to treat Jesus as if he is here to cater to my own happiness rather than uh, for me to align my life to his. I kind of feel like I need a, a fresh start, a new heart almost. And 
you know, God kind of anticipated this, right? All the way back in Ezekiel and other passages in the Old Testament, he prophesied a day that his people would get a new heart, a heart of flesh and not a heart of stone, a new you, a chance to be almost recreated. That he would offer forgiveness of sins and the newness of life by the giving of his spirits. That in the process, he would take the law, he would take the Bible, his laws that restrain us from our sin and guide us to flourishing in him, he would take it and he would get his pen out and he would write it on our hearts. The implication being that he would get this, put it inside of us, and let it renew our conscience and renew our hearts. This is one another way, another way, uh, when Jesus said that, you know, the law of Moses is not abolished. Rather, he's going to fulfill it, and he's going to take it and put it inside of you. He was going to take it and write it onto the depths of your heart, and the deepest, and perhaps the darkest, and even the most secret of places. The prophets foretold this. Jeremiah spoke in 31, chapter 31. This is about 500 or so years before Jesus It says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, for this is the covenant that I will make. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. Jesus quoted some of this stuff at the Last Supper, right, when he was sitting with his his disciples. And I will be their God that shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them. To the greatest, for I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sin no more. He will reach down and write his law on our hearts. He will get his spiritual pen and begin carving his way into the depths of who we are. That just shows how great a need we have for God and just how much of a sinner we are before him. This is part of the good news of Jesus Christ. Um, He tells us, what this new covenant will look like when it's placed inside of us. And this is what um, the rest of our text is about. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 through 26, this is what it looks like when the, when the law is written on our hearts. That's what he says. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Ten commandments. We know that. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Kind of sweating after reading that. Like, wow. This, of course, comes from the Ten Commandments do not murder. But how, how do we define anger? It's a little subjective, right? Um, can you see? Anger. Sometimes you can see anger, but other times people get really good at hiding it, right? You ever shaken somebody's hand and you know, um, you know, back in the old days when we could shake people's hands, um, even while you were just like fuming mad, but you've learned to smile and pretend like, yeah, I'm I'm fine. I don't feel like actually approaching this person, but the anger just burns. Nobody knows, nobody sees it around, but the anger is just burning inside of you or vice versa. You've spoken with somebody. Everything seemed fine. A week later, you're like, wait, you were that mad at me? We spoke last week. Why didn't you, I don't, you you look normal, right? As Jesus quotes one of these Ten Commandments, you shall not murder, he is saying now, if we get this law and we write it into our hearts, into the depths 
of us. He says that's where murder begins. And those feelings of anger, that's where it begins. And it's actually equivalent to murder in my kingdom. The message here is that you need a new heart. It's not just about doing the right thing in his kingdom. You can fake that. And we get really good at faking doing the right thing. It's your heart. It's his motivations and your intentions that need to be renewed in him. It would be so much easier if he just gave us a checklist and said, just do this stuff, guys, and you'll be fine. Right? Wouldn't that be a lot easier here? But he's saying, no, you have to feel the right, have the right motivations and the right intentions of living. Those have to be aligned and shaped after me. This gets really hard. The change of Jesus begins on the inside, and it shows on the outside as we live it out. And we'll talk more about this as we continue on. He continues by offering us the ultimate need for us as Jesus followers, and that anger comes, and we begin to accept this internalization of the law, right, onto our hearts. It's not enough to just let the anger, you know, uh, just say, I'm going to get rid of the anger, right, and then not do anything about it between you and whomever you're angry about. That's not enough, right? You have to go and do something about it. You have to go and, and at least attempt reconciliation. That's what Jesus says here. In fact, even if you know that somebody else is angry with you, you need to go do something about it, or at least try to. You must rid yourself of anger and pursue reconciliation because even the Beatitudes, it said, blessed are the pure in heart. You cannot have a pure heart with fuming anger inside of you. Jesus says it this way, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave it. Leave your gift and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. For truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. He shows almost like an exaggerated kind of, you know, version here. It says, imagine you're at the temple. This is the ancient temple, the grand and glorious temple in Jerusalem, and you're offering your offering on the altar. It's a sacred moment. If somebody's doing that, you don't really want to interrupt it. You let that person's worship take place. But something can interrupt it, and that's if you know somebody else is mad at you. It almost sounds a little petty, like, well, just how mad, right? He doesn't go into the details here, but if you know somebody's mad at you, then you better drop that gift and you go pursue reconciliation. He's not even addressing your anger. He's even taking it one step farther in his masterful just abilities to teach. He's saying, no, 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 if somebody else is angry at you, I mean, of course, if you're angry, you do it, but even more so, if that person's mad at you, you go do something about it before you give your gift here at the altar. You take the initiative, so, and he says, and this is the hard part, these things I'm talking about have eternal consequences. The anger you feel inside of you, if you don't deal with it, you're liable to the judgment of hell. Eternal consequences. I don't want to soften his words. It's easy to say, well, I'm a Jesus follower. I'm saved, always saved. I believe that, and I embrace that. But Jesus does not feel the need to soften these words with that doctrine. It's so easy for us to want to do that. I want to let his words stand. I'm going to say this. If you have the anger, you refuse to deal with it, and you don't even feel bad about it, 
maybe your heart doesn't belong to Jesus. If guilt is present, whenever I see guilt in somebody, if there's a hardness of heart, even if they're living in sin, but they're like miserable doing it, that's a good sign, right? There's conviction taking place. But if I see zero guilt, zero sorrow for their sin, and they're still claiming the name of Jesus, that's tricky, scary ground to walk on. So how do you reverse this? You pursue reconciliation. I want to just stop and have a pastoral word. If you're sitting here and the Holy Spirit is just throwing the face of that family member or that person in your life that you have just blocked out, you're like, nope, I ain't dealing with that one. I'm just going to like ignore that person and just kind of ghost them and act like that they weren't a part of my life anymore and I'm just going to move on. If the Spirit's just throwing that person's face into your mind right now, don't resist the Spirit. Let him speak to you and go and be reconciled to that person. Do what you can. As Paul said, as far as it's up to you, go and be reconciled. In doing so, what you're claiming is that Jesus has the authority over your heart, and you don't. That he has the authority to tell you to do this. And remember the big picture. This is for our flourishing as human beings in his kingdom. This is for our betterment, right? Go and be reconciled and listen to his spirit as he speaks. We'll move on to the, the portion concerning lust, and we'll close here in a few minutes. Matthew five twenty-seven through 30. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members and your whole body be thrown into hell. Once again, eternal consequences for these things. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. The true story, I remember I grew up in Georgia, and I don't know where this was. It may have been in my hometown. It made, um, wasn't the front page, but it was close to it. Somebody did this. Like they actually, and this isn't a pastor's story that's fake. This has really happened in the deep south. Somebody gouged out their eye. And they were walking on the side of the road, just barely hanging on blood. You know, what did you do? Well, the Bible says to gouge out my eye, so I did. Because it was causing me to sin. I want to say that don't do that. I don't think Jesus was actually saying, go cut your hands off. If that was the case, we would all be blind and handless, okay, um, pretty early on in life, okay. Um, that's not what he is at. This is hyperbole, okay. This is it's an exaggerated attempt to show us the seriousness of his words. He's saying, look, pay attention. This is not something to fool around with. If you're one of my followers, all right, don't go and cutting off your hands. No, but Wake up and listen. This is serious, serious business, all right? And when it comes to intention, that there's, there's, I wasn't going to tell this story, but I'll, I have to really, I, I want to find a way to, you know, stories stick with us. I'll tell this story. I didn't make this parable up. This parable came from, um, I think Charles Spurgeon may have wrote it, but Timothy Keller, another pastor, retells it often. I'm going to tell it here too. Point us toward the intentions of our heart and how on the outside, okay, as Christians, 
we can learn to do the right things and impress to people around us and, and maybe, you know, I mean, implicitly or maybe intentionally, but we can fake our way through this What Jesus is really not our authority in life. We can fake these good religious actions and not have the law, uh, you know, penetrated and written to our hearts and controlling our intentions. But on the outside, everything looks hunky-dory. There's this little parable that can really point this out well. Um... Uh, you know, imagine there's a king who, who had much, you know, uh, land and he was very, you know, kingdom was very big and he had a gardener, okay? And uh, this gardener tended his garden, which is right kind of beside the palace. And the gardener, he, he grows a carrot and it is this magnificent, massive, huge carrot. Glorious, big carrot. And he loves the king. And he said, you know what? I'm going to give this. I've never grown anything like this. I'm going to give this to the king. And so he goes and he says, here, king, here's the biggest carrot I've ever grown, and it's yours. And the king was so moved by this peasant farmer that he said, you know what? Come and live in my land. Take care of my gardens. Bring your whole family. I want you to care for my gardens. He was so moved by the heart and the love of this farmer, and the farmer was just ecstatic. So the king had a nobleman who says, wow, he just got a lot handed to him for a carrot. What would happen if he got something better? And so he goes up to the king with this huge, tall, black stallion, horse. And he says, king, I breed horses for a living. I'm one of your noblemen. This is the best horse I've ever had. It's yours. The king said, thanks. And he walks away. And the guy's like, what's going on? The other guy, carrot, you know, and he's living with you and has your royal garden. What about? And the king said, look, I know what you're thinking. He says, look, when the farmer came to me and gave me the carrot, he gave me the carrot. And he said, when you came to me with your horse, you really are giving yourself the horse. You see what's happening there? It's all about the intentions. On the outside, the two actions are very similar but it's about the intentions. Who are you doing this for? And Jesus, by mentioning lust here, he goes right into that, and he says it's about your intentions here. You can have a conversation with another person the opposite sex, and you can have, it looks fine on the outside, but your heart is just raging with lust, right? It's about aligning our motivations to Jesus. This is the seriousness of the situation with the whole analogy of the hands and the eyes right? We have to allow these things to permeate and get into the, the deepest and, and most innermost caverns of our heart and let him live and dwell there. And I want to wrap us up here. I know this is, this is hard. This is hard stuff. Like, I, I, you know, preparing this, I'm just like, Psh, you know, please don't see me as like, I'm telling you, go and do as I do. Like, this is really hard stuff from Jesus. But I'm telling you that right now in our nation, we desperately need Christians who are at minimum pursuing this kind of newness of heart in Christ. And so I want to read you a couple of um, questions, um, application questions as we close. The Bible is not about you. It is about Jesus. Do you read the Bible only to get something from it for yourself? Or do you read the Bible to get more of Jesus? To align yourself to Jesus? To learn more of the heart of Jesus? Or do you read it like you read Hallmark cards for some nice encouraging words that make you get warm butterfly feelings and walk away and instantly forget what you read? The Bible's not about you. You don't need more of you. You need more of Jesus.
Number two, how much do you live as if you have complete and total authority over your own hearts? Uh, there's a catechism that we read to my kids uh, somewhat often, a New City Catechism. The first question is, what is our only hope in life and death? And the answer, if my kids are probably at home saying it now, we are not our own, but belong to God. Do you try to live as if you are your own? Number three, do you listen to Bible teachers who use the Bible to talk about all sorts of things that are not Jesus? There are lots of people now who try to use the Bible and try to predict the future, or try to find all this stuff in the Bible. And the Bible can be, you know, also used by motivational teachers to just give us some motivation to go to work and work hard one day. And for, for the sake of you, I mean, they're innumerable out there. Just go to Barnes & Noble and look on the, uh, you know, devotional, motivational shelf, and Bible verses will be strung out everywhere. But how much do the Bible teachers you read and you listen to and watch point you to Jesus. If Jesus is not the primary topic of, of thought, of prayer, of conversation, of purpose, of engagement into these things, you need some red flags to appear with the people that you're listening to. And as we end here, and number four, call the worship team up so this will close us with a song. This whole passage is really a message to us of turning the entirety of our orientation in heart and in our souls and our motivations and our thoughts and our feelings leading to the actions in our life, pointing all of it to Jesus and to be healed from selfish living, to be healed from making life about us, to making even the Bible about us, to heal us from constantly trying to cast off whatever restraints that lie in a way for our happiness, putting all of that aside and rather following Jesus and in faith letting the Spirit of God write his law on our hearts in daily, even every hour, saying, Jesus, give me more of you. I need more of you. I need less of me. As John the Baptist was famous for saying, he must increase and I must decrease. So on that note, let me pray. Jesus, we thank you, Lord, for just the, the wonder of who you are, the splendor, the, the true majesty of who you are. Lord, you remain the answer to all of this world's ills, and even for our own ills. Lord, we need you. Help us to be uh, people who are, are quick to repent when we make life about us instead of you. And Lord, in those dark spots where we just don't let anybody in, where we just block off everything and we want to keep little parts of our hearts and our motivations for living and those, the secret motivations behind our good deeds that we maybe do or the lust that rages or the anger that still resides, we want to hold on and cling to those things because it feels good. Lord, help us to get rid of that even now that for uh, most of our church who are watching at home this morning, that they even in their living rooms be willing to drop on their knees in repentance and ask Jesus to come and fill them even now. Lord, we need your spirit and its power in our lives more than ever. For Lord, we are saved in you. We are redeemed in you. And Lord, we have the promise of grace after grace as we walk this path and we stumble and we fall yet again that you say, I am here to lift you back up because I love you. And I have nothing but grace upon grace for you. 
Lord, I pray as we imagine these things for ourselves that we look to our neighbors and our heart just, just burns for them. We say, they, they need Jesus. They need Jesus oh so much. Lord, what would you have me do? How can I love them and serve them? And how can my life just, just gleam of you in order that they may see you in me? And Lord, through our weaknesses, you promise that you are strong. And Lord, in our failures, failures, you promise to lift us, Lord. We are saints in you, Lord. In all of our imperfections, you still call us saints and members of your house. Lord, how um, uh, just wonderful is your grace in the gospel, Lord, in your resurrection, the promises of newness of life. And may even today we just embrace that newness of life by the help of your spirit. May we embrace it, pray for it, seek after it. And Lord, you promised you would be with us to the end of the age. We love you so much, Jesus. It's in your wonderful and mighty and awesome and glorious name that we pray these things by the help, oh, the help of your spirit who we do so desperately need. To the glory of God the Father, amen.